0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace. It's good to see you guys. It's fun to watch all the children being dedicated. I heard a lot of oohs and ahs, which means you should have another baby. That's all I'm saying. That was the Bogue's philosophy. Apparently, it's Phil and Kelly's philosophy. And so we're we're excited about that. But love, love, love being a part of that and uh, love... God blessing us with those kids. So thank you for letting us celebrate with you. Hey, uh, before we get into this weekend's conversation, I want to uh, tell you a little bit about what we're going to start next weekend. So next weekend, we're going to start a series on friendship. And uh, I am really excited about it. This is a series I've been wanting to do probably for, I bet you, five years I've been thinking about doing it. And it just kind of never f- worked incorrectly to what we were trying to uh, do. And finally, it uh, we scheduled it, and it's where we want it to be. And I'm really, really cranked uh, to do this. It, it's uh, hilarious. When you think about friendship, a lot of times we think about it like a BFFs or Facebook friends kind of thing. But actually, when the Bible talks about friendship, it's a very core part of our interaction with God and our interaction with each other. So the Bible has a lot to say about it, has some wonderful demonstrations of some deep friendships. Uh, there's a negative side, like get these people out of your life. There's a positive side, bring these people into your life. And I think you're going to find it really helpful and meaningful and uh, something that you're going to be, um, be blessed to be a part of. So be a part of that next week. Bring a friend, announce it on Facebook to your Facebook friends, which aren't your friends, but we'll talk about that more next week. right? And uh, we'll, we'll dig into that conversation a little bit. We've been in a subject, uh, our conversation here called um, How to Live with Other Humans and Not Lose Your Mind. And we're going to finish that up this weekend and through this conversation we've been talking about the thread of forgiveness and we said in our relationships with each other that forgiveness has to be a part of who we are and what we do as human beings, what we do the most naturally is we sin against God and against each other. That's the core of our nature to do that. So we hurt each other, and we all know that. Every level of relationship we have is going to have some element of that. And so friendship becomes or I'm sorry, forgiveness becomes this very predominant theme that has to be a part of our relationships with each other, and of course, it's central to our relationship. With God, So we've been talking about it, and uh, we've said we're gonna, we need to push this conversation through three kind of paradigms. And so we said the first paradigm is this, when we're talking about uh, forgiveness, we said that forgiveness is not as much of an, as, of an act as it is a habit. So there is no such thing as forgive and forget. We don't forget, so, but we can forgive. So I'm not going to forgive you once for something. I'm going to forgive you over and over and over and over again. So when Jesus was talking to the Apostle Peter and he said, you need to forgive 70 times seven, what he said was you do you just keep doing it. Buzz Lightyear would have said to infinity and beyond, right? So I just keep forgiving. And how deeply you hurt me is going to predicate how much that habit's a part of my life. The more you hurt me, the more I have to forgive you. So it's not an act, it's a, it's a habit. It's a way that we live. The second paradigm that we've kind of been pushing things through is this. We've said, forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not an impulse of emotion. So sometimes I'll feel good about forgiving you and you forgiving me. And there's kind of this magical moment that you can put a ribbon on, but that's not usually the way that it works. But I can choose to forgive even if it doesn't feel great. I can make a cognitive decision. I can make a decision to position my heart a certain way. And I can move down a path, whether you who hurt me will move down that path with me or not, because it's an act of the will, it's not an impulse of emotion. And then the third paradigm that we've been talking through is this, we've said that at its core, forgiveness is about my relationship with God, it's not about my relationship with other people. So it's really not what you did to me or didn't do to me or for me, it's really about what Christ did for me and how I'm responding to Christ and at its core, I'm, I'm yielding to who Christ is, I'm being transformed by Christ, and then you kind of get the, the benefit of that or the overflow of it. So we've been, you kind of frame the conversation in those three paradigms, and then we started picking it off through levels, and we said on the lightest level of forgiveness, these are the everyday little things. We talked about letting go of our Legos. They pile up, but we can choose to let them go. And and we said that there's good news and bad news. The good news is that's the easiest layer of forgiveness to deal with. Like, you got on my nerves, I forgive you for it, right? You just walk away from it. The bad news is it's a layer of forgiveness that you're going to interact with the most. So we get on each other's nerves a lot more than we do anything else because for some reason, I don't know what your problem is, you cannot put the seat back to the car the way that I had it when you got into it how complicated it can be and why is there a Snickers wrapper in the door, right? So I can, I'm going to interact with it the most, but I can let it go. The second layer then that we talked about was legitimate offenses. Like you really did hurt my feelings or you really did offend me. What do we do about that? And we walk through Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus actually lays out kind of a step-by-step process that if I'm offended, I go to you. I don't wait for you to come to me and notice, right? But I go to you and we start working that out and then it spells out through there And then last weekend, we talked about what we call life-altering injustices, where you are a victim and someone did something evil to you, and your life is changed because of that. How do we respond to that? So we've kind of pulled through these layers. I encourage you, if you've missed any of those conversations, uh, you can open up the app, hit messages, they're right there. You can go to our website, graceofhow.org and you can watch them or listen to them there. You can sign up for a podcast of every weekend's uh, message. It'll come right to you if you sign up for it. If you're not sure how to do that, grab an eight-year-old, and they will help you organize that real quickly. Uh, but those are nice. Those podcasts come out pretty quick, and so you can get those right away. But all those things will help you catch up and uh, help you to think through those conversations more. This weekend, I want to take us to the, the deepest layer of Forgiveness. So we're kind of picking them through layers, and we're now down to the very, very core layer of forgiveness, and we're at the place where forgiveness really has its genesis, so to say, where it all starts. And in this layer, what you're going to find is kind of the seed of forgiveness. If if you were to look and say, "What what in the world do I start with?" you would start here. Uh, in this layer, you're going to find your, the motivation to forgive, because in our culture, uh, we're, not taught, we're not taught to be motivated to forgive, Like right? You hurt me, you're dead to me. It's kind of the way that our culture works. So why would I even engage this and go through this pain with someone? Uh, in this layer, you're going to learn to understand how, what the people are like who hurt you, what they struggle with. In this culture, or in this layer, we're going to find the, the, the strength to forgive, and then finally, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the secret to forgiveness. How do you actually start this, move with it, and uh, and make it work? Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna pick all that through here this weekend. Now, before we get going, I wanna I wanna do a little exercise together. Okay. So this is this is gonna feel a little bit weird at the beginning, but later on I'll pull it back in and it'll make sense. But I want you to uh, look at something. So in your notes, either on the app or in the printed notes, or they'll be up on the screen, is this verse. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21. Look at that real quick. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21. I want us to, uh, I'll read this aloud, but I want you to read it to yourself and kind of engage it here. Galatians chapter 5. God says this, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, right, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a couple places in the Bible where God literally kind of makes a list and he's like, hey, listen, just in case there's confusion, sin is this. And this is one of these things. The, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Some of your translations will say uh, the deeds of the flesh are obvious, right? That when you see these things in your life, or you see these things happen around you, it is obviously sin. And you need to know it. And it's kind of an, an, an arguable point. Uh, with God. So things like these things, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and so on and so forth. Now, so what I want you to do, I want you to look at this list in your notes or on the screen. You can use a pencil if you want or just in your brain. And I want you to do something a little weird here together, okay? We're gonna participate together uh, this weekend. I want you to look at that list and I want you to go through that list, or immorality, impurity, sensuality, outbursts of anger, whatever it is, and on a scale to 1 to 10, 1 is, I know it's a sin and I probably should confess it, 10 is someone should be put to death for this. It's a death penalty offense. So one is like, yeah, man, I got to quit having those outbursts of angers. And it's just, you're bringing up everything that happened on your way here in the Honda Odyssey minivan to Grace Church. You, You know what I'm talking about, right? You should have gone to the extension. It starts a half hour later, but I told you that before, right? So one is like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Ten, that's a death penalty offense. I want you to go through, and in your own mind, I want you to rate the seriousness of every one of the things on that list. Okay, so how serious is sensuality, how serious is jealousy, how serious is uh, drunkenness, all right? And just real quick, don't overthink it. Some of you are like, I don't know, what's it mean in the Greek? Don't do that. That just means you're kind of a, a nerd, right? But just give it a 1 to 10 rating and get a vibe of how serious those things are, Okay. All right, as you do that, you can continue to do that if you want. I want to take us back to the beginning of our conversation. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, when we started this conversation about how to live with other humans and not lose your mind, we started off with this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 And 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 says this: get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And we started the whole conversation. We said we are to forgive each other as we have been forgiven. The Bible says that that way as well. And we said this is, this is a huge part of our motivation that we are to forgive. It's not hard to find that in Scripture. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am to be willing to forgive. And the way the Apostle Paul says it here is this. He says you are to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now I want to take some time and I want to talk about that phrase. I want to understand it. How did God In Christ, forgive us. What does that mean? If we're to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you, then then what did God do in Christ when it came to forgiving you and me? Okay? Now, I warned you last weekend, we're going to do some major thinking today. Okay? So if you didn't take your five-hour energy, if you haven't had a cup of coffee, you may want to look at someone and just have them slap you in the face real quick. because because we need to be like awake for this, I'm actually going to teach you a very important piece of doctrine this weekend, okay? And this piece of doctrine, it sounds a little like heady and boring, but it shows up in massive ways in your life. And it's all around this phrase, just as in Christ, God forgave you. You. So let me show you this piece of doctrine, we'll talk about it, and then we'll swing it around how this shows up in our life. So flip over to the right a little bit in your Bibles, to the book of First John, First John chapter 2, it's page 855 of those Bibles in the chair, 1 John chapter 2, page 855, remember we're talking about how, what's it mean that just as in Christ, God forgave you, verse 1, chapter 2, 1 John, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So John says, I'm writing this so you will not sin, but if you do sin, there's a couple things you need to know. One is... We have an advocate, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that right now what Jesus is doing is He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He's interceding on our behalf, or He's praying for us, and He's advocating with the Father. What what would He be advocating? He would be looking at the Father and saying, hey, don't forget, that person, even though they're sinning, is your child, They have been covered by my forgiveness. There is no condemnation. That is a brother, a sister, a joint heir with me, your son, Jesus Christ. He's advocated, there's no condemnation for them because of what I have done and what they have received. So he's advocating Jesus Christ, the righteous one, or we might say the sinless one, is doing that right now. And then verse two is a fascinating verse, says this. Jesus, he, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does it mean that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins? Here's the doctrinal piece, ready? We call this, all, all of us uh, nerd, Bible nerds who use big words, call this the substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary atonement. He's a, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What it means is this. It means, I like to say it this way, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe for those of us who owe a debt that we cannot pay. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe for us who owe a debt that we cannot pay. Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. That language and imagery goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God in part, was teaching his people the seriousness of their sin. So in the Old Testament, what you had to do to have your sins forgiven, God made a law and said, you do it this way, is once a year or so, a family, so the Bogue family, would go out to our herd, and we would get the most spotless, unblemished lamb that we could find, which, by the way, would have been our most valuable possession in the ancient world, And we would take that lamb as a family, and we would travel to Jerusalem if we could, and we would go to the temple, and we would give that lamb to the priest, and the priest would slaughter that lamb, and he would sprinkle its blood on the altar of atonement. And that blood then would cover the sins of our family. There's a whole bunch of backstory, like a lot of things in the Old Testament that I don't have time to get into this weekend, but the big picture was this. God wanted people to understand the seriousness of their sin. And he, in essence, was saying, listen, it takes a life to purchase a life. You have you you are died in your sin. It takes a life to purchase a life. It takes the seriousness of blood to cover your sin. I want you to remember that. And in the sacrificial system of laws, that's what God would have people to do. Now you fast forward into the New Testament, the Bible says that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, and the Bible would say that his sin, his blood covered the sins of the world. So Jesus is the ultimate substitutionary atonement or atoning sacrifice. He died once for all, The Bible says his blood covers the sins of everyone, and that's what allows forgiveness to be offered to you and me. So, Jesus, the righteous one who never sinned, stood in as a substitute on the cross for you and me. I'm the one that deserved to be crucified. I'm the sinner. I'm the one that deserved the full payment of my sin. I owe a debt I can't pay. So Christ paid a debt he didn't owe. He never sinned. He stood in my place as the atoning sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement, and that's where our forgiveness comes from, and that's how our sins are forgiven. Now, that piece of doctrine is actually the the cornerstone of Christianity, right? So most of us who would get up and come to church and sit and listen to somebody talk about God would, in a, at least in a broad way, would accept those premises, right? So that's why we may come to a Christian church instead of a, a Muslim mosque or something like that, because we would accept those premises. So if I did a vote and said, who believes Jesus is, is God, most of us would raise our hands. If I did a vote and said, who believes that we're a sinner, most of us would raise our hand. It's not that hard to figure out that we're sinners. Anybody ever tell a lie? Raise your hand. Quickly, you cheat, lustful thought, every man and woman raise his hand. Okay, so we're sinners, right? It's not that hard to agree that we're sinners. I'm a sinner. Jesus is God. I can't pay for my sins. I can't live a perfect life. Someone perfect had to live life for me and give his the substitutionary atonement. And that's why we would believe that Jesus is God and why we would ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins. That's why we, we would look at the cross and understand what that was. And generally, in Christian doctrine, we would believe in that. Okay? It's a huge, huge thing, big, big piece of, of doctrine. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Okay? Now, the problem becomes this the problem becomes that you and I don't tend to accept or receive the fullness of the doctrine of atonement. So we would kind of agree, like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is God, yeah, I'm kind of a sinner, I'm not perfect, you know, right? We would kind of agree with that on some levels, but we don't download the depth of our need for God. So I I wrote down some things, I made these things up, Uh, I wrote down things like this. Many of us accept what I call a a comparative atonement. Jesus, God, yeah. Are you a sinner? Yeah. But I'm not X, Y, Z. Are you a sinner? Yeah, I'm a sinner. But it's not like I'm a murderer. Are you a sinner? Yeah, I'm a sinner. But it's not like I've ever, like, cheated on my spouse. Are you a sinner? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But it's not like I'm like this drug dealer kind of thing. It's a comparative atonement. Do you need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus? Yeah, I need it. But they really need it. I mean, that guy needs some atonement over there, right? And we would look at other people and we would would compare our need for God to their need for God and say, well, I need God, but they really, really need God. Another way that we kind of interact with the atonement is what I call a diluted atonement, right? So we, we might say, are, is Jesus God? Yeah, are you a sinner? Yeah. Uh, are your sins a big deal? Well, some of them are. I mean, but come on, really, lust? I mean, who doesn't? You know, who doesn't? I lust, you lust. Have you seen my pastor? I can't stop myself, right? It's like, right, is lust that big of a deal? Is 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 dropping an f bomb? That is it the end? It's greed the end. I mean, greed's like the American way. Is it? Aren't aren't we kind of overreacting? Yeah, I need some sin. Yeah, I need help going to heaven. But good night. Lighten up. And it's a diluted atonement. Do you need the atoning blood of Jesus? Yeah, I do. But I mean, c- come on. We could all relax a little bit. The third way that I wrote it down is what I call the self sufficient atonement. So, is Jesus God? Yeah. Are you a sinner? Yeah. Do you need forgiveness of your sin? Yeah, I do. But what I need Jesus for is like the big stuff. And then I kind of I got it. Like, Jesus, I'm all about you getting me out of hell. I'm very pro heaven, very anti eternal fire, right? So, I'm all about getting out of hell. But after you get me out of hell, I really don't want you messing with the rest of my life. So thank you, but I have it from here. I'm self-sufficient. I'm a good person. I try my best. I have good intentions. So let's just leave it at that. Thanks for your help, big guy. Looking forward to hanging out in heaven, Okay, And we'll look at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, substitutionary atonement, and we'll say, yeah, Is is Jesus God? Yeah. Am I a sinner? Yeah. Substitutionary atonement, a big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. It's an important deal but how I receive it in real time, I'm gonna allow that to affect me in different aspects of my life, okay? And maybe not take it in for the fullness of what it is. Now, it's fascinating how God views the atonement, because that's how we would tend to view it. Whether we said it out loud or not, it's kinda how we interact with it, right? It's fascinating how God views the atonement, okay? So let's go back to our little list, back to Galatians chapter five. So remember, we looked at our little list, one to 10, how big of a deal are these sins? One is, yeah, it's a sin. 10 is, somebody should receive the death penalty for it. And this is what God would say about this. In James chapter two, just leave Galatians five up on the screen for me. James chapter two, ready? This is what God says. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point Is guilty of breaking all of it. Catch it? Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. In other words, Jesus would say no matter how good you are at being moral or being religious or well intentioned, If you mess up once, you are imperfect and you have broken the whole of the law. Now wait a minute, right? I'm not a murderer, but the Bible says in 1 John that if you hate your brother or sister, you are a murderer in your heart. When's the last time you talked to your dad? When's the last time you talked to your sister that you can't stand? Now, not like I cheat on my spouse. Now, wait a minute. The Bible says if you look lustfully at another woman, you've cheated with her. You've committed adultery with her in your own heart. <laughs> yeah, I know. I only lust after my own wife. Yeah, whatever, right? I am the murderer. I am the adulterer. In fact, if I keep the whole law but stumble at one point, I am the the greatest sinner I can identify. There is no comparative atonement. There is no… That list in Galatians, God looks at that list, a scale of 1 to 10, He puts a 10 on every one of them. He doesn't scale it, He'd say, no, the whole law has been broken. God looks and says, now the wages of sin, because if you break one thing, you break it all. The wages of sin or what you earn for your sin is death. It's all a 10. It's all the death penalty. It's all a separation from God you are that sinner. You have broken every aspect of the law. That is who you are. And when God looks at humanity, He looks at us in the reality of who we are, not in the rationalizations that we put upon ourselves. God looks at us and He says, now what you guys are is you are dead in your sin and in your trespasses. You are enslaved to sin. You aren't people who need a little bit of help. You are people who are dead and need a complete resurrection. You, you, are, you are people whose hearts are deceitfully wicked. In other words, you, you're so sinful, you don't even know when you're sinning. I'm that way. I can't, I can't tell if I have a pure motive or not 90% of the time because I'm so self-centered, right? I might be helping you to feel good about myself, which means I didn't really do it for you, I did it for me, which... Eh. My heart's so wicked, I can't even tell when I'm sinning or not. God doesn't look at you and say, man, these are people that might go to hell one day, I better help them out. God looks and says, you are people born into sin, you're on your way to hell now. I must provide a way of escape for them. You are standing in rebellion against God now. You hate the truth and love what is evil. Now you might say, that's not true, I'm a Christian. Every time you knowingly commit a sin, you hate the truth and love what is evil. Every time you ignore the Bible, you hate the truth and you love what is evil. I am that person, see. I am the greatest sinner that I can identify, and I am guilty of breaking the whole law, not just pieces and parts of it. In that desperate state, in that state of rebellion, while I am standing with my fish raised to God, the Bible says I'm an enemy of God in my heart. While I don't care about God, I've forgotten what I did to God. I'm not asking for forgiveness. I don't care if I reconcile. I don't care if I have a good relationship with God. What I did, I did, and I moved on. While I'm in that state, ready? Christ died for me. The enormity of God's love can only be understood when I grab hold of the enormity of my rebellion against God. The depth of the atonement can only be received when I grab hold of the depth of my sin. God didn't come to polish me up a little bit. He came to resurrect me from spiritual death. Because I am a sinner and I am a sinner through and through, and I stand in desperate need of the substitutionary atonement. Jesus has to pay a debt he doesn't owe, because I owe a debt that I cannot pay. Right? Now, we're talking about forgiveness in our relationships with each other, So how does all of this play into our relationships with each other, why is this so important? Ready? Because forgiveness will only be offered at the depth it has been received. I am only going to offer forgiveness to someone else at the depth to which I have received forgiveness. If I think I'm a really, really good person and Jesus only needed to atone for my, you know, my really, really big sins, but not my everyday sins, then guess what? I am not going to offer forgiveness to things that I've decided have crossed a certain line. I'll forgive you for getting on my nerves and the whole put the car seat back where it's supposed to be thing. But since I don't believe that I would ever abuse since I cannot see myself as a sexual predator, since I I just cannot believe that someone would take someone else, I will cut off my willingness to offer forgiveness there because I actually don't believe I need it myself. Forgiveness will only be offered at the level that it has been received. But when Christ looks at me in my sin, he would say this. He'd say, listen, wait a minute. Don't you see that you are the victim and the predator? Don't you see that you are the one who's been sinned against and the one who sins against another? Don't you see that? Don't you see that, that you are the one That was abused, but you are the abuser, that you are the sinner that you are withholding forgiveness from, but you, in the depths of your sin, were offered forgiveness, but you have to receive it, and you have to receive it at the depth to which you actually need it. I, in my sin, am as guilty as the one who sinned against me. I, in my forgiveness, then, God says, we forgive as we have been forgiven. I forgive on the level that I have been forgiven. Now, I'll just show this to you real quick. When we limit our understanding of the atonement of Christ what we'll do is we'll accept some of Jesus' forgiveness. This is kind of the way that we would think of it. Yeah, I smoke, drink, and chew, and I root for Michigan. I need to be forgiven. You know, we'll kind of… That, yeah, thanks, Jesus. I really want to get out of hell. But as we accept the depth of our own need for forgiveness, we actually receive Jesus' forgiveness more Wow, I I never realized that I am the murderer. I need to be forgiven for my hatred. I need to be forgiven for my adultery. I need to be forgiven for my attitudes. I need to be forgiven for my selfishness. I have to receive the forgiveness of Christ. The forgiveness of Christ has to fill me completely, not partially. And all of a sudden, this is what happens as I receive the forgiveness of Christ, what happens is I start to forgive as I have been forgiven. The forgiveness that comes into my life starts to spill over into someone else's life. Because I would start to look and say, now wait a minute, I was refusing to forgive you, but I am that person, see, I, I, I was refusing to forgive you because you abused me and you abandoned me or you just got on my nerves. But I do that to God. I abandon God. Every time I walk away from Him or deny Him or fail to speak of the hope that's within me, I abandon God. Every time that I think a lustful thought, I commit adultery. I am my ex. Every time that, that I harbor sin and enjoy it, I look at pornography, I do it on purpose because I kind of like it. I am the willful sexual pervert. Just because it's normal doesn't mean that it's sinless. I am the sinner that I may be refusing to forgive. And the more that I understand the depth of my sin, the more that the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Christ fills me, And suddenly, I forgive as in Christ, God forgave me. I can forgive you because I've actually done what you've done. I can forgive you because I'm actually guilty of what you're guilty of. I can forgive you because you and I are actually a lot alike. And as I receive the depth of what Christ needs to do in me, that's what spills out of my life and I forgive as I have been forgiven, see? It's a fascinating thing. This is nuts. This will blow your mind a little bit. You wanna know this? In order for me to understand the power of forgiving someone else, I actually have to get in touch with my own sinfulness. And as I understand the depth of my own sin, I start to realize, how do I stand in self-righteousness over you? How do I, now I'm not talking about excuse, remember we talked about identify sin, you're guilty of it, we're hating what's evil. I'm talking about my willingness to release it, my argument that I have a right to this bitterness, to this anger, to my desire, my willingness to say that I have a right to be vengeful. And Christ would say, no, you have done all this, I acted as the substitutionary atonement, and you needed the atonement, my atonement. You needed it as deeply as the person that you would identify as the greatest sinner that you've ever met. Suddenly, I'm motivated to forgive because I have been forgiven. Suddenly, I understand the need to forgive because I, I stand in the need of forgiveness it's actually not that hard to figure out how that person could have hurt me because I'm a lot like that person. I could have done the exact same thing and maybe have done it in a different way to someone else. In my relationship with God, I'm responding to the forgiveness of Christ, the transformation of Christ, the atonement of Christ. I'm not weighing my responses based on how you responded or did not respond to me. I'm defined by who Christ is, and I'm acting in a Christ-like manner. I'm forgiving as I have been forgiven. The more I do that, and the more I get a hold of that, the more my past ceases to define me and Christ defines me. The more I'm no longer identified as a victim but as a victor because in Christ's forgiveness and mercy I've overcome what has happened to me. And the more I can share that hope with those around me. I put it in your notes this way. Here it is, ready? The secret of forgiveness is to accept forgiveness. Forgiveness. The secret of forgiveness is to accept forgiveness. And at its very, very core, when I think about a life-changing injustice, when I think about a legitimate hurt, when I think about all the little things that get on my nerves, at the very, very core, forgiveness is not about my relationship with you, it's about my relationship with Christ. And at its very, very core, I am the offender desperately standing in the need of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I need to be forgiven. And the more deeply I receive that, kind of the more thoroughly that floods into my life, that's what allows me to have the power, the strength, the motivation, the ability to forgive as I have been forgiven. And guys, let me, uh, let me just ask you some questions. We get, kind of walk away from this series and conclude these thoughts. I just want you to maul this stuff over because this stuff is hard, right? This is not like a, I I told you, you need like an Advil after this conversation because it's like a little bit mind-busting because we're so locked into I might have a right and we don't because we are in need of the same grace that someone else is in need of. So let's talk about this forgiveness. Let me ask you a few questions. Here's the first one. The first one is, have you received forgiveness? So the Bible is crystal clear that this process has a starting point. And the starting point is me receiving the forgiveness of my sins from Jesus Christ. So the starting point is, is me agreeing that, with God about who God says he is. When Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, nobody goes to the Father except through me. I'm agreeing with that, that Jesus is Lord, right? I'm believing it in my heart. And it's also me agreeing with God about what God says about who I am. I am a sinner. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I cannot save myself. Christ had to intervene with me and me accepting that fully. And then when the Bible says, when I bring those two things into agreement, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and I am a sinner who needs a salvation, what I must do then is I must repent of my sin. And all the word repentance means is that, is that, it literally means I turn away from. I'm running away from God, I stop, I'm a sinner, he's God, and I repent, and I turn to God, to Christ. I repent of my sin. I turn away from my sin and I run into the definition and the direction, the salvation of Jesus Christ. If you have never made that decision on purpose, where you looked and said, I I know what I'm doing. I'm choosing to believe Jesus by faith. I'm choosing to repent of my sins. I'm choosing to give my life over the direction, definition of Christ. Then I would encourage you to do that right now. That's the beginning of the process, okay? There is no secret prayer. There is no magic words. You don't have to join Grace Church, but from your heart to God's heart, you're confessing that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you're repenting of your sin, everything we just talked about and asking for the forgiveness of Christ. And the Bible says that's where we, are, we receive salvation, we become a part of, a, of, of, we become followers of Jesus, we're born again is the Bible term for it, where I was spiritually dead and now I'm born again, I'm resurrected, I'm made alive. It's the beginning of forgiveness. Now, accepting forgiveness doesn't stop there because that, that's a huge thing, it's the beginning point of it. But I need to keep downloading forgiveness even as someone who's been born again. So I would ask you this question Have you received forgiveness for your past? See, some of us would look and say, I'm so glad that like, God pulled me out of hell, but man, I, I'm just kind of used goods. I'm not, I'm not the person who needs to forgive somebody, I'm the person that needs to be forgiven. I am, I'm the. I'm the person. Would Christ forgive me of that? And the Bible says that the atoning blood of Jesus cleanses us thoroughly. In fact, it says the old is gone, the new has come. I'm a new creation, I'm not the old thing. Some of you are still living in the guilt and the shame of your past, you're looking and saying, I I know I'm not going to hell anymore, but I'm still still that woman who had the abortion. I'm still that guy that walked out on his first marriage. I'm still that person that slept with everything that moved when I was in college. I'm still those things, right? And you are allowing yourself to be defined by something that Christ no longer defines you by. When you think about serving the Lord or telling the truth about Christ or even leading your children strongly or interacting with a friend who watched you commit these sins, you're guilt-ridden and you're ashamed. In the back of your heart, you feel an accusation. Who are you to say anything about this or who are you to do anything because of what you did, right? The Bible says that the devil is the accuser. But in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who have been forgiven by Christ. Your sins have been washed away. They've been a as far as the east is from the west. They've been buried at the bottom of the sea. Those are Bible terms and descriptions. I need to receive the forgiveness of Christ. I need to let it come all the way in. Don't define your life. You are not defined by what you did. You're defined by who you are. And in Christ, you are a new creation those were your activities this is your identity and we live in freedom and part of why this is such a big deal it's because we're bound by this junk. Your is still controlling you. Your dad is still driving your nuts. Your ex is still doing this. That friend who betrayed you is still. And the Bible says, no, 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 there's freedom. You break out of all this stuff. That's why you have the power to forgive someone who's not asking to be forgiven. That's why you have the power to receive forgiveness at the depths of what you did. There's freedom in Christ, and it comes through His work in me. But I have to receive the atonement all the way, not just a little bit. Jesus didn't die just to get you out of hell. He died to give you life and to give you life to the fullest. He died to set you free. So receive the forgiveness of Christ all the way through. Last question. Who do you need to forgive? See, some of us have received the forgiveness of Christ, but we are not forgiving as we've been forgiven. We have to let the forgiveness of Jesus fill us up kind of the rest of the way and look and say, now, I I need to let this go. I need to move past. I need to forgive the one who hurt me because that lack of forgiveness is defining your life. I am so grateful that 50 years ago, my mother forgave her alcoholic father who abused her. She found Christ, she received the fullness of the forgiveness of Christ, and she forgave her dad as she was forgiven. I was not raised by a bitter, angry woman who saw herself as damaged goods i was raised by a joyful confident woman who saw herself as a daughter of the most high god i am so grateful that about that same time my father forgave his father who abandoned him i was not raised by a man that was harboring bitterness and was always seeking to have revenge on his dad i was raised by a compassionate and loving man Who received the forgiveness of Christ, who led his family with joy, and who cared for the man who walked out on him until he died in his own house, right? He honored his father through his death, took care of him. I'm so glad that they broke cycles of revenge and bitterness and lack of forgiveness. I am so grateful that my wife Heidi does not keep a record of wrongs. She would need like a terabyte and just to keep the record of my wrongs in her life. She married an idiot, right? I am so glad that that... pettiness and back and forth does not define my relationship with my wife. I'm so glad that my children forgive their father who has no idea what he's doing 98% of the time when it comes to parenting. I've never raised kids before. See how that works? I am so glad that Christ came to forgive us. I am so glad that his atonement is complete. We need to receive it. Salvation, forgiveness. And then we forgive as we've been forgiven. Just as in Christ, God forgave me. All right, I'm going to ask the band to come up. Would you bow your heads for a minute? Uh, Guys, I just, it's a lot, a ton to download. I know that. It's, sorry, it's almost a little... Like a fire hose this weekend, but it's just so important. And I encourage you just to spend a few minutes and think and pray. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I encourage you to pray to Him your words. God knows what you mean. Don't worry about saying it right. Worry about meaning it. Accept the salvation of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you may ask the Holy Spirit to help you push these things deep into your heart, to understand them in the unique ways that you need to understand them, okay? But let's use these songs and kind of a still time and just press deep into our relationship. Jesus, we love you. Help us even now to understand and fully receive your forgiveness to be transformed, to engage that, God, and to take full advantage of the power and the life change that you want to offer us. Help us even now in your name, amen.